Welcome to the Passive Wealth Strategies Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Mark Owens. Mark is a very experienced real estate investor, guys. He's done so much in his career. Today, we're going to talk about the Burr strategy, the Burr method, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. It's a great way to scale a real estate portfolio very quickly without a lot of money, but it takes a lot of work. You got to have a lot of hustle and a lot of know-how and resourcefulness. So Mark's done many of these, and today he's going to teach you about how he did it, how he scaled, and lessons that he's learned along the way. For those of you who are new to this show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy multifamily real estate with passive investors and split the return. I love talking about investing. I love talking about real estate, and I love learning alongside you with all of our great expert guests. I learned a lot in this one. I'm not a Burr investor myself, but there's so much to be learned from the strategy, the process, and like I said, the resourcefulness here. If you're thinking about getting into Burr's, Mark has a ton of knowledge in this space, and he shares some of it today. So without any further ado, here we go with Mark Owens. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Taylor. I appreciate you having me. Happy to be talking with you. You have a great story. Can you walk our listeners through you know, where you were in the corporate world to where you stand today, please? Sure. You want the short version or the long version? Let's go short version. You have a lot of knowledge to tell us. You know, Let's yeah. get it your story and then get to the knowledge. Yeah. 2001, I was uh, in the IT field. I was a Microsoft certified trainer. I was making between 130 and 150 a year. Invested some money in the stock market You know, before the dot-com bust and... Uh, I was in the bubble and th- I thought I was skilled at it because I was making money. And yeah. then the market crashed and I realized that I wasn't skilled. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. But the good news is I didn't lose what I put in. I just lose, lost all the money that I made. And I was sitting around for like a year and I'm just like, man, I, you know, I was living below my means. I stayed in the townhouse that my wife and I still live in. And, uh, and I just kept saving money and I thought, man, what the hell am I going to invest in? And years earlier, I'd had an interest in, in buying rental properties. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try that. I'm going to buy a rental property. And then I thought to myself, I'm not going to buy one. I'm going to buy like between 10 and 20. Because my goal at that time was I wanted to, I was an independent consultant and my wife wasn't working. We had a child and she was going back to school. So she wasn't going to work for four or five years. And that meant that if I lose my job, you know, I say something stupid, I get hit by a car, I get sick, then there's no money coming in. So I thought I want to buy enough rentals that throw off enough cash just to cover my basic living expenses. And, uh, and I bought my first one. And the truth is like I instantly got addicted to the cash flow. I just bought a car. Uh, I think it was a Nissan Xterra like two weeks before I bought this rental property. And I remember that my car payments were like 312 a month and the cash flow from this property was $325 a month. <laughs> and I'm sitting there at the settlement table and I realize, like, man, my tenants are buying my house and they're buying my car. Like, this is awesome. And then I'm starting to do the math. Like, man, if you know, like I get another property, then that's going to pay my gas and electric bill and my cable bill. And, and I'm starting to see this in my head. Like, man, each tenant is going to like knock off another chunk of one of my bills. Like just one less thing that I have to worry about. And, uh, I think the first year I probably bought maybe eight properties and that was like 2000, March of 2002, I bought my first one. And by the end of that year, I think I probably picked up like eight units. And, uh, 
the next year I continued. And, and what happened was, uh, and maybe we can talk about this later on, but, you know, after a couple of years, you know, like the cash is starting to dwindle. You know, I started, I think I had 120 to start and that was running out back then. You can put down 10% you could finance the rest. And, uh, I've discovered this Burr method. I thought I actually invented it. I wish I'd have given it that name and written a book on it because then I wouldn't have to do anything. Right. And, uh, you know, I just, I started buying bigger properties, you know, once I realized that I could use other people's money to do this whole thing. And I started buying, you know, like mid-sized apartment buildings, like, I guess like 10 to the, the biggest building that I own right now that I've ever bought was 18 units. Uh, and for a while, for a few years, I was looking for buildings that were 10 units and up that needed renovation. And it took about a year to find each one. Each one was about a year, but I'd get a bunch of doors. I'd get between 10 and 18 doors every time I did that. And they would cash flow well, and I would get, instead of, you know, twenty or $30,000 in equity, I would get two, three, four, or $500,000 in equity. And uh, I kept doing that for a while. And in the meantime, I'm watching my friends, like, they continue to buy houses. And this was after the crash around 2007, 2008. I see all my friends buying these houses like that are really cheap. And unfortunately for me, I kind of still had like a scarcity mentality kind of like, man, did we hit the bottom yet? Did we hit mm-hmm. the bottom yet? I don't know if I want to buy it. Nobody else is buying. And, uh, and finally I just got up off my butt and I said, you know what? I mean, what's the, you know, I'm buying for cash flow. It doesn't matter what the property's worth. If I buy it for 70 and it's worth 60 a year later, like I don't care as long as it's cash flowing. And then I started buying houses again. And, uh, you know, it was probably my third or fourth year, somewhere in that range of buying rental properties that I realized that I could actually quit my job, that I didn't have to like work for other people anymore. And I partnered up with a wholesaler and uh, you know, we, we started wholesaling, I guess around 2005. And for a few years, I actually made even more money doing that than I was making when I was in the IT business. And, uh, I did the smart thing, in my opinion. I just took all the money I was making and I just kept buying properties. I didn't, I didn't raise my standard of living significantly. We went out to dinner more often and stuff like that. But like, I didn't go buy a $90,000 car and a $700,000 house or any of that stuff. I was really more interested in freedom and financial peace of mind than I was trying to impress people. Because the, the truth is that most of the time, the only people that are impressed by your car are people that don't have any money. Mm-hmm. People that got money don't care about your car. They care about your money. Like, how are you doing that? How much did you make? You know, is it reproducible? Is it scalable? You know, the people that, my friends that I have that I grew up with that don't have any money, they'll talk about your car. Man, where'd you get that? How much did you pay for it? You know, so, and uh, not all of them, but some of them. And uh, so I just, I took kind of my own advice and just, I just kept my standard of living pretty much the same and just invested my money and uh, into my business. And eventually it got to the point where I'm at now where I've got a little over a hundred doors. My wife still works. She loves her job, but, and the income isn't a hundred percent passive, but the truth is like I make my own schedule. You know, if I want to sleep till 10 o'clock tomorrow, I can, if I sleep till 10 o'clock tomorrow, I'm going to wake up with a headache for the rest of the day. <laughs> I, I usually get up at like six, six thirty anyway, just cause I like the mornings. And, uh, and that's, Kind of like the short version of the story. Sorry if that was too long. Oh, no worries. And and for those for reference, uh, for those out there listening, it is uh, seven twenty four p.m. on a Sunday. So Mark is uh, is out there doing it, even though he doesn't quote unquote necessarily have to. Um, but something I wanted to dive into you with today is the Burr method. Uh, 
for those out there listening, the super basic, if you don't know, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Buy the property, fix it up, put a renter in it, refinance it, get a bigger loan on it so you get your money back out and then you repeat by doing more. Just to have those basics on the table because you can go read about that. We have the expert here today. So Mark, I wanted to talk to you about some of the the details of actually executing that strategy, uh, specifically where we stand today, you know, in the market, are people, you've, you've coaching clients, are they finding deals on the MLS? Where are they finding the deals? How many are they looking at before they're doing a deal? I mean, let's, let's, you know, get into the process here. Sure. Let me talk about the burr real quick. Um, for any of your listeners that have, like have ever done rehabs or read books about rehabs or any of that stuff, there's typically like, there's a very basic formula that rehabbers use to help evaluate a deal. And I'm just gonna keep the numbers very simple since we don't have a whiteboard or anything. I'm just gonna keep the numbers very simple. You start at the end, which is what is the after repair value of the property? Like after we fix this house up and sell it, what's it gonna be worth? And we're gonna use in this example, we're gonna say that the ARV or the after repair value is $100,000. Then let's run that through the formula. 70% of $100,000 is $70,000. Then we subtract our repair costs. So we'll say for this example, we have to put $20,000 into the house to fix it up. We can paint, carpet, kitchen, do, maybe do some landscaping. So we need to put $20,000 into it. So we subtract that from the 70,000. So 70% of 100,000 is 70,000. Minus 20,000 for repair costs gives us 50,000. That's the most a rehabber should pay for that property. So they buy it for 50, they put 20 in it, they sell it for 100. You don't make 30,000 off of it because we're not including your transaction costs when you buy it, your transaction costs when you sell it, your holding costs for the six months, nine months that you're holding it, you know. And, uh, but maybe you're gonna make 15,000 on it. That's the typical formula that a rehabber will use. And when I, when I, when I realized I'd done a few rehabs and then I thought to myself like, Man, what if, what if instead of selling the house, I go to a bank and refinance the house? And, and back then, banks were doing like 80% LTVs. So if the house is worth 100 and the bank will give me 80, then I get all my money back. I get my purchase of 50, my 20 for the money that I put into it, and 10,000 for the transaction cost. So I'm going to get all my money back. Now, here's the question that people have is like, well, man, I ain't got $70,000. Well, that's what hard money lenders are for. You know, you use a hard money lender for the whole thing, you know, for the purchase, for the renovation, you know, you probably gonna need some money in the bank or you're going to have to have a really good reputation or like a rich aunt or something like that. That's gonna <laughs> give you money. But, uh, but hard money lenders are the key to really scaling your business. And when I first heard of hard money lenders, uh, I was like, man, you know, people are telling me it's like 12% and three points. And I thought, man, that is really some hard money. You know, it's like, you know, I was almost offended by it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was explained to me. It's like, look, man, these people are like your partners. You know, they're putting up all the money, you know. So you're going to do the work. They're going to do the money. Do you want to give them half the profit in the end or just give them 12% a couple points? And I did the math and I thought, eh, I'll give them the 12% a couple points because I'll actually make more doing that. And, uh and so that's the method that I use. Uh, so let's just go through it again. The, the B is the, you know, for the Burr method, the B is buy. Now, how are you buying it? You can either use your money or hard money or line of credit. You know, wherever you're going to get the money at, you're going to buy it. 
then you're going to uh, renovate the property. You're going to fix it up. Then you're going to rent the property out. Then you're going to refinance to pay your hard money lender back or to get your money back from wherever you got it from. And then you can repeat. And the good news about this is like, let's just say that you have a hundred thousand dollars. Most people probably don't, but let's just say you do. You have a couple of choices. One is you can go buy a turnkey house and then you're out of money. You got to wait till you save another hundred thousand to buy something. <laughs> the second option is you buy one for 50, you put 20 in it. By the time you're done your closing costs and all that other stuff, maybe you're in it for 80. Well, now you've only got $20,000 left. Now you got to save up another 60 before you do it again. If you use hard money, let's say that stuff doesn't work just perfect. And at the end of the day, you're out of pocket five to $10,000. You can still get between 10 and 20 houses. Plus you can get a bunch of equity. If you go buy a turnkey house for $100,000, you have zero equity. You actually have negative equity in a sense because if you get to sell the property, by the time you're done paying the realtor and you know, maybe if you have to pay any type of transfer tax or recordation or anything like that, it could cost you six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars just to sell your house. So you're gonna have to get six or seven percent appreciation just to break even. So when you look at it like that and you run all the numbers, it really makes sense to do the Burr method. And I'm not a personal hard money lender. I have no interest in lending people money. It's like I'm just saying this is the way it works. If you want to scale your stuff, and that, that's how I was able to buy a seven-unit building, a 10-unit building, two 10-unit buildings, a 13-unit building, a 14-unit building, an 18-unit building, and a whole bunch of houses with very little out of my pocket. I can't remember. I probably haven't used any money out of my pocket for the last 10 years to buy any properties. And wow. I did it all through the Burr method. Wow. And if, for people that want more, you know, I mean, I gave all the details pretty much, but if you want to read more about it, Bigger Pockets has some great articles on it. So just, you know, do the search bar and type in like BRRRR, how many R's it is, and you'll find some really good information about it. Nice. So I think as far as the, the nuts and bolts of this whole process goes, are probably my biggest questions about it are okay, I'm not a rehabbing expert. How do I know? if I've identified these things as property needs, how do I know what that's going to cost? I mean, I, I'm not a, you know, a general contractor or whatever. How do you start figuring that out? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, what I would suggest to people is like, if you're new to the business and you really don't know that stuff, I cannot underemphasize the importance of networking in this business, going to local meetups, going to local real estate investor association meetings, you know, taking a guy like me out to lunch, you know, it's like you can, you can spend 20 bucks, buy somebody lunch and have practically a seminar in an hour and a half on, you know, like the ins and outs of the business. Uh, those are some of the places to start. There are some basic things like very basic stuff, like, you know, and I'm just speaking about my market in the Baltimore area. If you want to rewire a whole house, it's about $7,000. If you want to reform a whole house, it's about $7,000. If you want to put in new ductwork and a furnace, it's about $7,000. <laughs> Windows are about $250 each. So some of the stuff is like very basic. And, and when I go like, when I walk a property, if you know, one of my clients says, hey, Mark, you know, I saw this property I'm interested in buying, would you go look at it with me? We start, you know, in Baltimore, we have basements. I know some parts of the country that are close to the water, like, you know, Southern Florida and all, they don't have basements. But we start in the basement, because that's where the money's at. That's where you're going to see the plumbing, that you're going to see the electric, that you're going to see the HVAC, that you're going to get to see the joists if there's any termite damage or if there's any flooding in the basement. So I started in the basement, then I worked my way up. When I go up to the second floor, 
you know, I'm looking at the ceilings. I'm looking for any evidence of any kind of uh, water penetration. You know, in Baltimore, and again, it's just my market, a flat roof. That's the rolled rubber that they, you know, the Torchtown rubber. Mm-hmm. Typical Baltimore row house. The roof's about $2,000. If they got to tear it off, it's going to double. But if they're just going to go right over top of it, it's about $2,000. Keep it for six months, silver coat it. It's going to last you 20 years. Uh, so some of the numbers, the big numbers are very basic. Uh, I would suggest that if somebody doesn't know the numbers, then they want to, you know, find somebody else that does and go spend, you know, a couple hours with them at a couple different properties and ask them to just give them some ideas of what they, what the things cost. Don't get your information off of YouTube. Don't watch any of these videos on YouTube and just assume that because, you know, it costs $15,000 to get an HVAC system in Nevada in, you know, or like San Francisco, that it's going to cost the same thing in Memphis because it's not. So you really want to get your information from local guys that are doing it. Yeah, yeah. The school of HGTV is probably not where you want to learn. Yeah, that is the last thing you want to watch, man. That is the last thing. I can't stand that stuff. I never watch it. I never watch it. No way. Guys like you are too busy out doing things. And, and I know I know what the real world is, and that is not the real world. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like course. watching any of the other reality shows. You know, it's just it's not real. Yeah. So as far as finding these deals, I mean, are you right now, are you, your clients finding these types of deals on the MLS or through wholesalers? And, uh, you know, as far as scale, how many are you looking at to, uh, before you start making offers and closing on them and stuff? You know, for me, it's different for me because I've been in the business a while. So I can, I can pretty much look at a deal and evaluate it pretty quickly. Uh, but it's, as far as like where we find the deals, I mean, MLS, we find them on MLS. Uh, we do find them through wholesalers. I do go to auctions on a regular basis, either at the courthouse auctions for foreclosures, which can be tricky because a lot of times you can't get into those. Mm-hmm. So you really don't know what's good. So you have to assume the worst case, even if it looks great on the outside, the inside can be trashed. Uh, and then also on site auctions. And we're fortunate in Baltimore where we have auctions just about every single day. Uh, but those are some of the places it's also, you know, I mean, if you want to send out mailers, you know, yellow letters, uh, or postcards, you can do that or hang signs on the poles, the bandit signs. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. If you want to shortcut on wholesalers, you can just do the kind of marketing that they do. Uh, fortunately for me, because I've been in the business for so long and, and so many people know who I am, when a deal pops up that fits my criteria, a lot of times my phone will ring and say, you know, Hey Mark, I got this property over in this neighborhood. I know you're buying over there. And I can, a lot of times figure out if it's a good deal or not without even, you know, just cause I know the blocks in the streets, I, I have some kind of idea on whether or not it's a good deal or not. But one of the things I would suggest to people that are newer, if is what you want to do is pick an area, like find an area where other investors are at in, in the Baltimore area. Like one of the popular neighborhoods is called Valley Edison. And what I would tell a, a new investor to do is like, look, you want to find a real estate agent that is very familiar with rental properties because most of them are, you know, most of them, they're really good. If you get a first time home buyer with a big down payment and great credit, that's who they like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go show them four houses and make a fat commission with investors. We are a tough crowd, man. We are really tough because we're going to be looking at stuff and running numbers. And a lot of times real estate agents are going to have no idea what we're even talking about. And uh, so what you want to do is you want to pick your neighborhood and then you want to find an investor friendly agent that's familiar with what you're doing and ask them to set you up with an auto search. 
And what they're going to do, take some five minutes. They're going to draw an outline on a map around the neighborhood that you like. And then every day or every week or how often the listings pop up, you're going to get an email telling you what listings have come up in the last day or two. You don't want to just see the ones that are listed. You also want to see the ones that are under contract and the ones that have sold. So let's say by Friday, you've gotten 15 houses emailed to you that have gotten listed that week. What you want to do is spend Saturday or Sunday driving around looking at those houses from the outside. Don't go knocking on the doors. Don't, look, don't go looking in the windows or anything like that. You want to sit out front, look at the house, maybe jot down a couple of notes and say, okay, they're asking 70000 for this or fifty or whatever it is. And you do that for a few weeks and you're going to start to learn that market. You're going to learn the streets, you're going to learn the blocks, and you're going to learn what people are asking for the houses. So if you drive around for a few weeks and you see the houses are selling for 80,000 here, 82, 90, 78, 94, 80, 60. Oh, 60. What's that? That looks like that could be a good deal. The rest of them are probably retail. You just got one that's, you know, 20, 30% below retail. That could be a good deal for you. And that's the one that you want to call your agent and say, hey, listen, I'd like to get in and see this house. That's the way that you learn your market. As soon as other wholesalers and stuff like that know that you're interested in that area, then, and when you get deals from those wholesalers, you're going to be able to evaluate whether or not it's a good deal or not more than likely before you even leave your house because you've already been driving that neighborhood. You already know the prices. And I, I wouldn't say pick a big area. If you live in Richmond, don't pick Richmond. Pick like a half of a zip code. You know, it's like you can't learn the whole city, man. If you got a city with a half million people, there are too many streets, too many blocks. And in, in some cities like Baltimore, four blocks can mean a half million dollars in difference in values. You know, we've got some neighborhoods where the houses are six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars and four blocks away, the houses are twenty thousand dollars. So, you know, don't let the wholesaler give you the six hundred thousand dollar comps for a house that might be worth seventy thousand after it's fixed up. So you really want to know your neighborhoods. That's a good point. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned pick a half a zip code. I mean, the zip code that I live in, and you mentioned Richmond, where I live, uh, it's split by a fairly main thoroughfare, and north of the thoroughfare is uh, a higher end, nicer area. Mm-hmm. South of that, it the values go down quickly as you get further and that's away. That's where the money's at. That's where the money's at for rentals. In that downward trending region, is what you're saying. Like, like the D plus to B minus areas. Solid C's, you know, C's are where most people are working, you know, they got decent jobs, but it's not, you know, it's more blue collar areas. I can tell you how I evaluate the neighborhoods, but that's maybe a different show. (laughs) Maybe a different show. All right. So you mentioned doing your own mailers. I like the idea of taking control in your own hands, especially if you've got a, a laser focus and maybe a handful of square blocks that you're interested in, you're going to laser focus, target that area and send mailers what do you think about doing that, you know, yourself? Should you, I don't know, put your own phone number on the on the letter and say, hey, give me a call. I'm interested in buying your house. What do you think about that? I man, I've I've sent out thousands and thousands of letters. Uh, there's two big websites, Yellow Letters and Yellow Letters Complete. Those are the ones that most of the wholesalers are using, and they actually have templates that are put together and all that. Uh, as far as where you're gonna get your, you know, where you're gonna get the names and addresses of the people, you can buy mailing lists. Uh, Figures now, as we're talking, I can't think of the name of the company. Listsource.com is a big one. Listsource, that's it. Uh, Listsource, and there are other ones. In Baltimore, you can get by a CD that's got all the names and addresses, like the entire database for the city. You can actually buy it. Uh, 
most of the people in Baltimore don't know that. So mm. it's, a big, it's like 400 bucks and you get the entire like 600,000 properties. Uh, and it's on an Excel spreadsheet. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you Richmond city at least used to, and I think they still do used to give away the master file in a CSV comma, comma separated file. Oh, on wow. the website for free just down man i'm gonna start buying stuff in richmond now <laughs> <laughs> let me know yeah so what you do is you you know you just get your yellow letters together uh you get that list of addresses and names you send that to yellow letters complete or yellow letters and then they'll send the letters out for you uh but what you want to do is you want to screen your list like you don't want to buy you don't want to send letters to houses that people live in because it, you know, it's probably not going to be a burr deal for you. If they're going to have an emotional attachment, they're probably going to want to get a real estate agent involved and stuff like that. So you really, and you don't want to get a house. You don't want to send letters to people that like just bought the house two years ago, you know, because they're probably not going to sell it at something that's going to be a deal for you today. So you really want to look for stuff where they've owned it for longer than 10 years and that they're not owner occupied. And that's, you know, those are going to be the, the deals that you're going to want to farm. Hmm. So you're, are you generally targeting investors, people who are renting these properties or maybe people who have inherited them? Are you targeting like out of state owners or just generally absentee? Yeah, you, can, you can screen it down further like that. Like out of state owners, you might want to screen out the ones that are owned by LLCs because a lot of times those investors may be a little bit more sophisticated and they want to get top dollar. Uh, it could be, it could be, I mean, there are just so many different variables with it. So, you know, the big ones I would start with would be, you know, non-owner occupied, which is going to either mean it's like other investors or people, you know, grandma passed away 10 years ago and the family still has the house. It could be stuff like that. Uh, so non-owner occupied, uh, out-of-state owners are good a lot of times. I don't like LLCs and I want people that have owned the properties for at least 10 years. I mean, there are other methods. People use probate lists, you know, for people that have, recently passed away and the family has to sell one or more properties that they own. I don't deal with that specifically. I've got friends that do, you know, have friends that do like specialize in the tax liens, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Those for me, they're just too much work. And, and I don't, I don't want to deal with a. I mean, this is just my personal thing. Like a family just lost somebody that they care about. I don't want to be trying to like beat them down in price for, you know, that person's house. I just prefer not to do that kind of business. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I just don't feel comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate that. And and it seems to me that that's such a popular strategy that mm-hmm. people who are on those, you know, probate lists or, or tax lists, or whatever, they're getting so many letters that how is, how are you going to make your letter, you know, stick out so right. that yep. they're getting now, a lot, a lot of, of You're right. Yeah. Okay. So Mark, is there anything else you wanted to share with us before we take a break and get into uh, my three favorite questions for all this? You know what? This is, if, if someone's listening to this and they've never bought a rental and they're thinking about it, you know, I don't care if they're going to you know buy a rental or they want to do a syndication or something like that. The one thing that I can say is there are two things that you need to be successful in this business. You need guts and you need knowledge. If you got guts, and no knowledge, you're probably going to get by something stupid. If you got knowledge and no guts, you're going to have that analysis paralysis thing, and you're just going to sit there trying to look for the perfect deal, which doesn't exist. So it takes both. And if you're thinking, well, man, I don't have anything, Mark. I don't have any knowledge. I don't have any guts. I don't know what to do. The first thing you do is you start to get knowledge. You go to these meetups, you go to RIAs, you listen to podcasts, you, you, know, you start to get the knowledge. And as your knowledge level increases, your guts should naturally come up with them because you know, it's hard to have guts when you really don't have any idea what you're doing. 
And, you know, I always use this uh, analogy with like, you know, kissing your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your best friend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the first time you do it, it's like really hard and it's scary. And then the second time it's a little bit easier. And by the time it's the fifth time, it's, a, it's, a, it's much easier. And it's the same thing with buying properties or doing syndications or anything else. The first time is the scariest. It's natural. It's normal. If you're just going to go out and buy something and you're not nervous about it, then you need to talk to somebody. <laughs> you mm-hmm. need medication. It's, uh, it's normal to feel like that. But, you know, just arm yourself with the knowledge, man. Just learn your neighborhoods. Talk to other investors that are doing it. Nothing beats that. When you meet other people that are actually successfully doing it, nothing's going to give you more confidence than that. So that, that's one of the things that I just, I wanted to make sure that I was able to nail down was just, you know, that right there. Nice. I like that a lot. I think it's very important, you know, exposure and, and experience can really help us get used to doing what, you know, whatever the thing might be in this case, investing in real estate. One thing I still hate doing despite having done it a bunch of times is wiring money. We need to come up with a better system for that. <laughs> Well, you know what? The uh, I let the attorneys do that most of the time. Oh, that's good. It, it is a little weird, and and but you know what? I mean, it, and it yeah, just about every time I wire money, it's always going through the attorney's offices. So I'm, I feel a little bit safer like that. And I, and I'm usually dealing with local people. You know, if I'm going to wire, I, I'd be a little hesitant to wire like sixty thousand you know dollars to my Nigerian uncle or something like that. You know? <laughs> a little hesitant about that. Yeah, yeah. No, there are definitely things we can do to mitigate that risk, but. Uh, yeah. Still, it's the still. It feels like throwing a ball over a fence and making you know, hoping it hits the right place. But uh, anyway, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Mark, I got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? Bring it on, man! All right, number one, what is the best investment you've ever made, other than your education? The best investment ever made, I should say, my wife. But I know we're talking about real estate. <laughs> so, uh, so she's she is the best. But as far as rentals, I would say the first one was the best investment ever made because it might have not been financially the best investment for me, but it was the first one. It got me over the hurdle, over the fear, and I learned so much from it. So the and again, it was the hardest one. So I would say that the first investment was the best investment I ever made. Absolutely, going back to to exactly what you said uh, before we went to went to the break is putting your stepping your foot out there getting started and then you ultimately get used to it and the first one uh the first step is very important now on the other side of that sometimes it's hard to admit our failures or our hardest lessons learned so what is the worst investment you have ever made you know uh this is going to be really kind of it's true what i'm going to tell you is true i've never made a bad investment and I know. I knew you were going to say that. Okay. Here's the deal. Every investment I ever made, I made it with the information that I had available at the time. And sometimes you get additional information later on that didn't factor into your decision making. And then maybe it turns into a deal that wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be. But that wasn't a mistake that I made. I made my decision based on the information I had. And uh, the one thing that I would caution people on is, you know, partnerships are really tough. So, and I've, I've been, I've had partners with a few different ventures and two out of three of them did not go well. And um, I'm in one right now where a friend and I own like 14 units together. 
known the guy for years. You know, he does his part of the business. I do my part. He did what he naturally gravitates to. And I did the part that I naturally gravitate to. And I trust the guy. He's like a very, I mean, you could trust him as much as I do. He's just such a very decent, honest, hardworking guy. So like, I don't have anything to worry about. Uh, but we do have a very strong operating agreement in the event that something happens to him or I, like it's all spelled out what's going to happen. So he's protected. I'm protected. But it, back to your original question about like, you know, the worst deal or anything like that. I haven't had any bad deals. You know, I based all my numbers on cash flow, and uh, it's the most important thing to me. And uh, all my properties have done very well. Hmm. So, you know, if we want to take a quick diversion in that way, uh, because before we started recording, you said something very similar to that. So, cash flow versus appreciation. I mean, you've been in the market long enough that you've certainly had the benefit of appreciation. Um, did you plan on that? How do you advise your clients to think about appreciation versus cash flow? What's your stance on you know comparing the two and, and planning on this? The uh, cash flow is king. It's if you buy ten properties with no cash flow and two go vacant, well, who's going to pay the mortgages on those and the repairs and you know all that stuff? Cash flow is king. Uh, appreciation is I don't ever count on appreciation ever. If I get it, that's the cherry on top. I buy my properties based on, you know, I was looking when I first started on a 30% cash on cash return. And if my numbers hit that, if I buy a house for 70 and I make 30% off of it and 30 years later, I sell it for 70, that's fine with me. Perfect. I my money back and I made 30% on that money for 30 years. That works for me. If it goes down and value $10,000, I'm not really going to care because in 30 years, I'm going to end up free and clear anyway. So most of my properties, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't even have 30 year notes on most of them. They're, they're much shorter than that. But uh, cash flow is king. I would argue with people about appreciation in 2005, 2006, 2007, and most of them are out of business now. Because when the market tanked and the rents were going down because they were buying in nicer neighborhoods and the rents were going down, then uh, you know they didn't have enough money to cover their costs. And you know appreciation looked great. Again, it was like me investing in the stock market during the dot-com bubble. I thought I was skilled. Well, the whole market was going up. I didn't have any skill. I was just stupid enough. To it. And it's, it's the same thing now. It's like, if you buy for appreciation today, and good luck, you know, you're, we're going to be interviewing you in 10 years, asking about the biggest mistake you ever made in real estate. <laughs> Cash flow is it, man. Cash flow is it. Cash flow is it. Nice. So my favorite question out of these three, and we might've hit on it already, but we'll see. What is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? The most important lesson I've learned in investing, trust the numbers, trust the spreadsheet and go with your gut, man. Your gut is, there's no books written about this. It's not sexy. It's not talking about how rich you are. And you're going to be a millionaire with the yachts and all this crap. Go with your gut. Uh, that is probably one of the things that saved me more often than not. You know, it's easy to get the numbers in your head and, and, and the spreadsheets are very important. But for instance, with a tenant, if a tenant shows up and, and their application looks great, you know, the credit's good, you know, haven't been in any trouble and uh, income's good and, all, and you maybe do a home visit and the house you're living in looks good and everything looks good, but your gut's telling you like, man, something just doesn't feel right. And you don't know what it is. And then six months later, you're evicting them, you know, because, you know, stuff happens and your gut, but your head didn't. And how many times have we said that in our life? Man, I should have went with my gut. It happens all the time. 
and I could have, we could have a whole nother podcast on me explaining that and the way that that whole mechanism works. I'm just telling you right now, man, your gut knows more than your head does. So go with your gut. Hmm. I like that. I like that. So Mark, thank you for joining us today and tell, tell, teaching us about the Burr strategy. It's a strategy that people are using very successfully and have been for a number of years. As you uh, mentioned, you thought you invented it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> people had known about it before that. I was like Christopher Columbus, man. I thought I discovered it. I didn't know there was already people there. Yeah, <laughs> already people there. Leif Erickson had already showed up as well, yeah. so yeah. you weren't even the first year. It was, it was new to Chris, you know, so you got to give him credit. Yeah, that's right. And, and we are tomorrow, as we're recording this, tomorrow is uh, Columbus Day or it Indigenous is. People's Day. So I, I like the Indigenous People's Day because uh, yeah. that's a whole it's different right. story. Hey, listen, there's another thing, and we're going to have to talk about this, Taylor, if we ever, you know, have another podcast. Sure. The seller financing thing, man, I've done a lot of deals with seller financing. And one of my clients, uh, a couple of days ago, we went and looked at a house, and it was a, kind of a weird deal. And I looked at, there was an agent there, and I said, you know, ask the other agent if the owner would consider owner financing. And my client called me back a couple hours later and says, yes, he'll, he'll finance it. So man, you gotta ask, you have to ask. And uh, so this could turn out to be a really good deal for the guy. I've done a whole lot of owner financing and uh, it's one of my favorite things. So we'll talk about that later. Nice. Well, everybody out there, stay tuned for appearance number two. We're going to talk about seller financing, but for now, Mark, if people want to get in touch, where can they contact you, learn more about you, all that good stuff? Okay. I Then my website is markowens.com. My email is mark at markowens.com. I got to keep it simple, man. I got too much other stuff to remember. I don't want to have to remember my email address. Uh, Facebook, Mark Owens, REI. Instagram, Mark Owens, REI. I think that's it. LinkedIn, same thing. I don't even know why I'm on LinkedIn. I don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> The least fun of the social networking. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, definitely is. Yeah. So that's it. That's that's where you find me. All right, great. And to everybody listening, the links to all of those will be in the show notes as well in case you missed anything or you can certainly rewind and, and listen again. But uh, Mark, for now, thank you for joining us once again and sharing your some of your knowledge. Hey, thank you so much, Taylor. Hope you have a nice evening. Hey, you too. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a very big help. If you know anyone out there that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. For now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.